All right, great souls. Any questions left over from last week before we go on? This is relative to, we're on uh, 212, right? Yes, we are, exactly. I remember a couple, three weeks ago, you mentioned... Excuse me, we're actually on 213, but go ahead. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, a couple, three weeks ago, you mentioned how um, useful it was to go back and refer to two or three sutras before where he actually lists the obstacles and lists the ignorances yeah. and stuff. Right. I found that especially helpful with with here because you know we're reading along one sutra after another yeah. and the tendency is to you know concentrate on that but I found it really helpful to just go back and look and see well what were those obstacles what again? Were the what were they obstacles? exactly? Because exactly. It, he puts it in such a beautiful context that the entire picture yeah. is. You know. I was going to suggest maybe the last class we'll just do a reading of every sutra, you know, sequentially, and then we'll all know what it means. I was going to suggest to them that they put an appendix in this, which is just the sutras, instead of publishing it as a separate book. Just put the sutras straight through, because I think it would be for all those reasons then you can see it, how it all relates to itself. It's short enough. They put out the Gita as a separate little book because people like to carry the Gita. But even then, it would be nice in that book just to have it as an appendix so you could just, after you're done, just read it all the way through. I was going to make the suggestion to the publishing company. Pardon me? I know the publisher. Is that it? Okay. All right. So we're at number now, we're at number 213, which is what we're starting with tonight. We'll probably do a couple tonight, we'll see. You never know. The existence of a cause necessitates the existence also of a result, which may bear fruit in the bodies of different species and will decide their experiences in those forms and their longevity. I mean, I liked, the longevity was interesting. So... Let me just look for a second. The existence of a cause. I think it's in other texts that I'm reading. I was trying to remember where the question of cause and result was studied. But the existence of a cause necessitates the existence also of result, um, which may bear fruit in the bodies of different species, will decide their experiences in those forms and their longevity. I mean, there's just so much in there. Once Once we're existing in the realm of time and space... We're existing in the feeling that one thing follows another. Master made the interesting statement that because things seem to come one after another, he just put it this way, because one event follows another, we have the impression that one causes the other. He sort of was talking about when you step back from time and space, you don't really see it like that at all. But here he's talking about once we're in the realm of you know, my voice echoes to me in such a way that it's slightly distracting to me. I think it's more volume than we need. Yeah, I've been, I meant to say that all last week, and I kept forgetting to say it. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, let's see, now where am I? Oh, he's really just, he, he's, he's really talking about the whole wheel of samsara in a, real, in a real sense, that once you sort of step into this realm where you're doing ego-motivated actions and you're identified with what you do, once that starts, then it just has to keep playing itself out. And you can't escape by death. It, once those cause and effects are in place, then you have to keep incarnating, and then what happens in that incarnation is there. And even the longevity, which is a very interesting thing to throw in, because 
in, in our, our Wednesday night class is all about death and dying. And you know, many people's lives seem to end at a point when you wouldn't expect them to have ended. But what he's saying here is that there's the, the cause brings a result and the longevity is exactly determined by the causes that are put in place. And because we're so identified with the present reality, when, when that, that uh, cause brings its inevitable result, we don't know where that cause is coming from. And that's what's so confusing to us. I've, I've given the class multiple times I give it under the guise of finding happiness, which is way it's not. It is really true, but I end up only talking about time because we're so identified with this little tiny moment and the body that we're in. We're, we're subject to all these forces and we just don't know what's happening. If, we, if we're identified with eternity or moving toward eternity, then we see that this is the natural flow. This is inevitable. This is how it's going to be. It just simply can't be any other way. This follows, you know, on the question about how much free will do we have. Past karma have their origins in obstacles which are ego involvements and cause the events experienced in the present birth and in future births. So then Swami ends the one just before with this question of how much free will do we have, which is what I was dwelling on so much last week. And then he comes here again. It's the same cycle. This to me is um, almost the root of almost all unhappiness that I see in people is a lack of awareness of the the cause and effect cycle in their own life, a lack of fundamental belief in the cause and effect cycle, and a desire to find a loophole in the law of karma. Just an inner constant rebellion that whatever is happening, there must be something wrong with it. And instead of using our energy creatively to actually um, tune in to what it is that is, is trying to happen for us, we, we just rebel against it. And we, we, we think that we're putting out energy in a positive direction, but mostly we're just wailing. You know, asking God, why doesn't he make things different? Why doesn't he make things different? I've Work so hard, I'm so sincere. Why doesn't he make things different? I guess I heard those words coming out of my mouth, I think, on Easter Sunday. Why doesn't he make things different? But absolutely fundamental to the spiritual path, and I know you've heard me say this before, but it's worth emphasizing. There's a few key attitudes that you will never be happy as a devotee until you really, really get them. And one of them is everything is governed by karma, and karma makes no mistakes. And just, if one can just, whatever it is, just in that moment, karma doesn't make any mistakes. And so if it's happening to me, it needs to happen. And if it needs to happen, it's for my own good. And if I don't see why it's for my own good, then I need to look deeper until I can. Last night I mentioned that fact about, and I just thought of it in the moment, in all the years I knew Swami, I never saw him rattled. I was trying to think what the right word was just before I said that in that, that just felt like the right word to me. I never saw him rattled. I never saw him moved off center. I saw him intense. I saw him responding appropriately. I saw him compassionate. I saw his, his feelings being deeply touched by things. Um, I, all, many, many things. But it was never rattled. It was just whatever it was, it just, he dealt with it. And rat, I guess partly because I've been feeling rather rattled this last week. I tried to blame it on astrology. 
me, why would I be rattled otherwise? But it has been, there has been this strange energy that this is what it feels like inside my own head. What I read about the astrology is what it feels like inside my own head. It just feels like there's just a lot of dissonance out there and it's, it's making... But uh, it's partly because if the question doesn't arise in your mind about whether this is an appropriate thing to happen, then you're not rattled about it. It implies, you see, to be rattled is to imagine that somehow things should be other than they are. And just the, um, just the complete comfortableness. I, forgive me if I repeat myself, but I've been talking Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sundays, and so I've sort of lost track of what I said where. So an interesting idea comes to me, and maybe I said it to you 15 minutes ago, forgive me. Because <laughs> I can hear it having said it, but I don't know where. Um, now I forgot even what I was going to say. Um, uh, let me just think I did lose it. I lost it 100% with my little interlude there. Yeah, I just forgot it. Mm. Oh, I know what it was. It was when uh, Swamiji was having a lot of serious health problems and then some little thing went right. As I, as I recall, they used the example that he, his eyeglass prescription didn't need changing or his, he didn't have any cavities or something, you know, just trivial. And then I said to him jokingly, thank the Lord for little favors. And he was extremely stern with me, extremely stern with me. He said, you know, because what that means is that otherwise God is punishing you or something like that. And Swami just said, I never, I mean, he just, I never question what Divine Mother is doing. I don't thank her for this more than I thank her for that. He just, I mean, he was, he was so like not willing to make a joke, zero, because it was just too important an attitude to joke about. If this is what's coming to me, then I'm grateful for it because Divine Mother is sending it to me for my liberation. And what I was wanting to say is there's these very fundamental attitudes and the more deeply... I mean, we need to go to the heart of the issue because if we fight it piece by piece, we're always confused. Oh, I can manage to understand why this had to happen because you see then it led to this and we work out this elaborate jigsaw of cause and effect, why this was really a good idea. But we need to get way back from that. We need to get a much more core level that just simply says, of course. Why should I even respond? I wish I would react. I certainly shouldn't react. I should only respond. If this is what's being sent to me, then causes were put into motion which will bring inevitable results which will determine my experiences. And uh, Swami describes in the in the art and science of Raja Yoga, which is the clearest picture to me of how reincarnation works through various species, which is that you get whatever body you get, you inhabit it until you have reached the limit of what you can express and experience through it. And as soon as you reach that limit, and sometimes that's elderly, and sometimes it's not. Um, When Happy Winningham, who had AIDS, and death was inevitable for her, and she was not at all afraid. She'd had death and return experiences several times. And she had to, it was an act of will for her to stay in her body, really. She had to commit herself to continuing treatments and various things. She asked Swami the question, how long should I keep trying? Well, as long as you can make spiritual progress in this body. 
as long as you feel that you're still able to learn something and use the body. Do Kriya if you can or um, have a state of divine surrender, then you should continue to stay in it because it takes a long time to get to the point where you're old enough and wise enough and trained enough to be able to make use of that body. Uh, but that, that was a deliberate decision, which is odd for people. Most people don't have that choice. But uh, for all of us, the, lo- the longevity is because of the cause. Uh, it's, it's very important because our society is so mixed up about death because we just don't have any idea where we come from or where we're going. And people just, even devotees sometimes accept it as natural to be rattled by death. I'm not talking about personal loss of someone who's very dear to you. I mean, that's entirely different. It's only human to have a certain experience. But between a human experience (coughs) and an existential crisis, there's a big difference. So one can have, one can still be sad, but not, not misunderstanding. Jacqueline, when Avasudeva died, who was her husband, and he had been ill, but he died very suddenly. Um, he died unexpectedly, let's put it that way. She just, she, she just modeled it just exactly right. She was very sad and sorry to have lost him. Um, just, she never expected it, and just, she just didn't know what to do with the experience. But she never questioned God's will or his destiny or anything like that. She just struggled with the readjustment that was required of her because so, so many of her habits and her expectations ha- were fixed around his continuing existence. And when he wasn't there, it's like the, the foundation of her life went out from under her. Now, one can think, and Swami talks about this in the next, um, later on, about building a bonfire every night and just being ready to be free. It's a very, um, it's, it's a very uh, fun idea to ask yourself, how much could you walk away from? And if everything burned down, what would you miss? I was trying, when I read that this afternoon, I was trying to think, what if the house burned down and it was just all gone? Well, I just arranged with Sai Ganesh that my documents are in the cloud now. <laughs> <laughs> So I would need a new computer, but all I would have to do would be to open it up. You know, th- certain things would have to be replaced. But it's, it's, very, it's a good practice. Master said you should change your habits regularly. You should not just do things in a rote way all the time, just so that you don't get into this feeling that this is the only way I can live. Every time I sort of start running my little patterns, I at least try to make them very conscious. Oh, now I'm having my little cup of tea. Now I'm sitting in the little spot where I always sit when I have my cup of tea. You're just, so instead of just thinking that my happiness depends on these patterns, we can at least just observe ourselves watching these little patterns. And what would happen if? And I always like to think we could all just start over. Ananda Village people got to try it in 1976 when it all really did go to ashes. When Davy was trying to talk to her mother about what happened to their house, it was so inconceivable to her mother in wherever she lived, St. Louis. Yeah, that's right, St. Louis. You know, her mother said, well, you know, you you did get the baby's things out of the house, no mother. You did get this out of the house, no mother. And then she said, mother, go over to the fireplace and pick up a handful of ashes. She said, that's our house. (laughs) And so whatever isn't, doesn't fit into a handful of ashes, that's what we don't have now. 
And then, you know, it's quite something. What have you lost, really? All right. So then he goes through this fascinating question, which everyone asks about whether or not you can get thrown back to the animal level. And Swamiji says here, and he, he said it on a, a recording I was listening to recently, he has a very um, negative attitude toward these uh, greedy money people who have, have really uh, greedy money people who have just for their own enrichment on a way beyond necessary scale just wreaked havoc on so many people and wrecked the economy and are continuing to wreck the economy. There's you know, quite a few exposés of just, it's just really terrible. The same people that caused all the trouble are still in power. It's, it's, if one really wants to be depressed, one can pay attention. <laughs> I don't recommend paying attention because it's just too depressing. I just toss it off with an early duapara. This is what you get in early Dwapara. You get power, but you get moral corruption. And we have moral corruption on a very, very notable scale. The historians are going to have a heyday with this one. Just how, how, how could they get so much power? How could the whole system be sold out? So Swami just proposes that some of these people are going to get thrown back to the level of wild animals. And just think about rapacious tigers. I know there's a lot of sentiment toward these animals because they're, some of them are dying out. Swami once when was confronted with the question of the fact that alligators or crocodiles were endangered species and somebody was trying to enlist his sympathy for it. Yes, I know there's ecological concerns here, but he said, those are just fierce and horrible animals. Why would we really be sorry that they're going away? <laughs> and I think somewhere in Florida, now that they're, they've been protected, now they're eating people again. <laughs> I mean, it's, I thought about it. It's, as the age rises, probably a lot of those really bestial creatures just don't come here anymore. And they're bestial only in the fact that, they just, that they're um, hunting, meat-eating, and therefore they're, they kill to eat. And I mean, that's not a very um, nice way to live, really. And some of them are worse than others. So if they begin to go away... It's, it's a bad sign. I'm not, I'm not an idiot here. I understand this. And I also understand that there's nothing ugly about nature because everything is just doing what it's supposed to do. But Swami does talk. These, these rapacious tigers, as he describes these greedy people, they just get to go live in the jungle. One of my friends once had a, a dream, and I think it was a, a true dream, and he was, in the dream he was, a, I think it was a bear. He was some big animal. And it was such a, I think it was super conscious because of the way he talked about it and the way even as he conveyed it to me, I can still vividly remember. He said there were only two emotions, he said, that that bear experienced, hunger and fear. He said it was just such a limited life. You were either hungry or you were afraid. And that's really all you experienced. I remember Anandi or Bharat was talking once, and since a lot of the examples that Bharat uses come out of nature although I think it was Anandi talking about, she was talking about rabbits. She was talking about the fact that everything eats rabbits, <laughs> that they're absolutely at the bottom of the food chain and they're virtually defenseless. So they spend most of their time quivering in fear, just running from predators and then waiting for a predator to find them. I mean, you can romanticize it, but that's really, in fact, a great deal of what they do. A lot of everybody else depends on the rabbit. That's, that is what it is to be at the bottom of the food chain. 
And so there you are, you become a tiger. You're looking for food, you're killing the food. Now, if you're coming up from the bottom and have made it from being a bunny to a tiger, you probably feel pretty good about yourself because <laughs> you've been hiding out with nothing to defend you and now you've got these marvelous teeth and claws and you probably are feeling like pretty hot stuff. If you came down from being a Wall Street banker, <laughs> and this is, this is the fascinating part of it that Swami implies here, which is interesting to contemplate, that some part of you, it's not like, it's not like you know, presumably, I don't think the brain of a tiger could hold the thought that I used to drive a Cadillac or I used to have a black town car pick me up every morning. But there would just be this horrible sense of confinement just horrible sense of confinement and this constant, I don't even know what it would feel like, but it, it would be hell. It would be an appropriate hell. You see it, as Swami always uses the example of the, ba- the group of gypsy beggars he saw at a railroad station in India. And they were all just beggars and one of them just looked so bewildered to be standing there being a beggar. Just everything about it, it was just a child, a woman, but everything about it was, how did I ever get here? And Swami looked at her and felt that she'd been a wealthy person who had been so selfish that she just had to be thrown back to the point where she didn't have anything. But part of her would know that this just isn't my life. This isn't where I belong. How did I end up here? You can see how subtle that would be. Much, you know, just to be able to either literally remember, and you could conceivably even literally remember. You would see wealthy people and you would feel at home with that. Which is interesting because you see some people who are quite poverty stricken, it they don't no part of their consciousness can literally even imagine another reality. So I've often used the example of my parents, and it's worth repeating. Their karma was comfortable to them in a way it wasn't comfortable to me. I kept trying to turn their lives into what I would do if. And there was no comfort in that for them. I had to I had to help them follow the trajectory of their own destiny. And so many people who are in conditions that we, we because of our, the, the results of the causes we've put in, would never be able to live that way. It's perfectly natural to them, and they can't imagine anything else. And they don't suffer in the same way. I don't mean to, that sounds so elitist, because everybody suffers. But the conditions of their life are normal to them. I always was, it was, Swamiji was very um, appropriately attentive to all the people who worked for him in India. He was generous, but not too generous. I mean, he, 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 he was respectful and supportive, but he just recognized that people needed to live according to the vibrations that were right for them. And, and he, had to, he had to teach some of the Americans who went there because they just didn't understand that you wouldn't necessarily... I mean, I read this horrible... I think somebody told me about it in the newspaper where some American girl went to India and fell in love with her rickshaw driver and married him. And then later on he found out she'd been divorced. And he ended up killing her. He just became enraged. It just, it just, she wasn't what he thought and he certainly wasn't what she thought. Just this complete confusion of realities that uh, affirmation won't cover. People really are who they are, and they have to live through their present realities. Sometimes, um, when you only live on the pleasure and pain level and your pleasures are thwarted, it turns to violence. 
You, know, you, you become so angry you can become violent. That's why you see a lot of violence among uh, people who don't have much, much education, much opportunity. Anger turns to violence easily because it's all physical. So if something goes wrong, you don't plot and scheme. You just react like that. And these are the causes that bring certain results. This is the challenge, you see, of just recognizing that karma is always what it's meant to be. This is what Patanjali is saying to us. Certain causes bring certain results. Determines where you're born, what species you're born in, what context your life is in, what experiences you have, and how long you're stuck there. So we just... I sometimes think of, you know, really difficult situations, hard, hard physical health, imprisonment, things like that. Like, how do you just do it day after day after day and just be realize that this is just, it's going to last as long as it's going to last? It's, a, it's always a big challenge and one that's worth practicing. Um, let me think how to say it. When difficult things come to us, don't always just think about... Uh, I want this to end, I want this to end, I want this to end. Just think instead about it will last as long as it lasts. And don't fret about it. Don't become rattled by it. Exactly. Questions, comments, or thoughts? Okay. Uh It occurs to me that... um Without a chorus, I think they they must kind of go like oh, you have to hold must kind of go like this. What? On one hand, these understandings and insights that we're getting here, but all these understandings and insights, for me personally, I couldn't do anything with them if I didn't love God and Master and Swami, okay. because it's only been in the ongoing. Recognition that God's not judging me, He loves me, that allows me to look at these things and try them on and go out. And so, one without the other. There are eight manifestations of God love, peace, joy, calmness, energy, energy, light, wisdom. And wisdom is one of them. And they all work together. I mean, it's, it's love that gives you wisdom. It's calm receptivity and service. He didn't mention, but I've mentioned service so much. I mean, service is not a manifestation of God. It's a way to overcome the ego. But they all have to balance together. And wisdom actually just comes to you spontaneously. Wisdom is not study. Wisdom is understanding. And because you can study all the time. You can memorize all the books and still not have any wisdom. You just have knowledge. Knowledge is not wisdom. And for, for us on the spiritual path, what happens is you just suddenly understand something. You just, just suddenly know something. You've heard the same teaching forever. And then just suddenly, oh, but I actually understand it now. It shifts from just knowledge into wisdom. Knowledge is a stage toward wisdom for most of us, especially in the sort of intellectually oriented, literate society that we live in. So we're not, um, we're not uh, peasants. We're not just living out in the fields and not having this brain side of ourselves. But the brain side of ourselves is not wisdom. It comes from the heart. That's actually right. The heart just suddenly perceives something. And so we have to just work. We work them all at once. It's a marvelously balanced path that we're on. Because we do have this wonderfully expansive um, 
intelligent component to it. You know, the, self, the path of self-realization is for really intelligent people. Uh, I don't mean that to, like really intelligent people, but I mean there's a, uh, there's a component of it that just requires a certain amount of intelligence. I, I realize that when I've been traveling and teaching sometimes, it's just, I really just can't, I really can't talk to any audience. I can really only talk to certain audiences because just what I'm spinning out is just too subtle. And I, I don't know how to make it different. I just can't. I'm not capable of it. I'm not called to make it different. So I just need to, to have people come in who know what they're coming to. And then we can uh, go out there really in an interesting way, but otherwise it doesn't work. I made the mistake in one place in India just accepting an invitation where the people were did not elect to come to see me. It was a college, but were sent by their teachers. It was a terrible mistake because they, you know, they didn't know what they were getting and they, they weren't particularly interested. It was very frustrating for me and for them. <laughs> I, I did a little bit of good. I did a little bit of good for the teachers who invited me. <laughs> but that was not, it was not even posted on the Internet. It was collectively, we all agreed that this was a dog. Let's just let this one go. <laughs> All right, so moving on. This is number 214. The fruits of one's past actions bring pleasure or pain according to their quality, whether they are uplifting or degrading. It's a very interesting statement. And he, he's, he, Swamiji is separating true spiritual growth from merely social custom. And it's a very important distinction to make, and it, it's really interesting. The book, Swami's book, Love Perfected Life Divine, which is the story of, of these, uh, a man and a woman who are soulmates and, and their experiences over many lifetimes to find themselves together and to finally fulfill what that divine destiny is between them. And the book makes a, a very strong point about how often they did not do what they were supposed to do because the forces of society in one way or another prevented them. Not always. It's not just a diatribe against social convention, but it's a subtle, it's a subtle teaching about what is actually expansive may not always be what is expected. And I, um, this is a particular thought I I have as I get to know Indian culture more. It's just a there's a big learning curve that needs to go on there, and I don't forgive me for being presumptuous because I know people in India watch this, but um, the expectation that merely because someone is older than you, they're wiser than you, or the expectation that, that social custom is the same as spiritual duty, you know, that if you're my son or my daughter, this is what is expected of you. I was talking to a friend, and I just had to say, you know, the expectation that your parents have of you are never ending. You know, they, as far as they are concerned, they own your life and they have a pattern for your life and they want you to follow it. And I was talking to this young person, don't think that if you just do this, it's going to end because as soon as you do this, then that will be expected of you. And as soon as you do that, then this will be expected of you. And it all depends, and this is the key, it all depends on where you're standing and what your intention is. If, for example, your parents genuinely need help and you have the capability to help them, but you prefer to spend your money on European vacations, 
or your parents have been very kind to you and have given you no reason to neglect them, but it's just too much trouble and they're not interesting to you, so you don't give them the energy that they deserve. I mean, that is not an upward-moving reality. But if they simply want things of you that are not in your best interest spiritually, and therefore it's not expansive for you to follow their directives, you at least have to stand back and ask yourself very seriously, what is, what is really dharma here? Dharma is that which expands your consciousness. And so he says here, the fruit of one's past actions, being, whether they are uplifting or degrading. And what Swami says, good or bad karma is determined not by any social code, but only the simple criteria. Will it uplift your consciousness toward God or draw it further downward away from the remembrance of him? And uh, I remember a woman was, who came to our church for a while whose, whose context was more of a traditional Christian one. She liked what was going on here, but she said to me one day, it sort of was, it was dawning on her, that we w- did not really embrace family values, or some, she phrased it in some other way. We didn't, we, we didn't support the family as the primary unit. And I just say, no, we don't. We're definitely not into fracturing it if we have a choice. You know, we're not into casually just dismantling and disregarding your responsibilities to one another. But no, it isn't the primary value. You know, building a stable society and have everybody just stay in their spot and do what's expected of them because somebody else wants them to do it. The only one that who really has the right to tell you is your guru. And the only response you can have is the one that comes from you internally. It's no value to just react in the name of freedom either. But the question is whether it is genuinely expansive or not. It's a, it's a, very, it's a very tricky question. Because merely because you don't like it is not the same. Or because it would be more convenient to not have to deal with this. Um, you may be missing the lesson that's there. It's one of those really sort of careful ones. But remember the story in uh, Master's Life with Diamata, who came to him as a young girl, 17, and at a certain point in her life, her mother was, um, I'm not sure if Swami identifies her in the book, actually, now that I think about it in the path, but it was Diamata herself. And her mother was struggling. And Daya said to, to Master, you know, should I go and take care of my mother? Should I leave her and take care of my mother? Master's response was, get out. Just go now. And, you you know, the answer was, you've given your life to God. You've given your life to God. You can't take it back and go support your mother. And it was a, a serious um, test for her. Like if, because once she's given her life to God, she's given her mother to God, too. And it, at least in her case. Now, of course, what happened was, Daya immediately repented and said, Master, you know, you're my whole world. I'm not going anywhere from you. And he said, that's better. And then he invited her mother to come and live in Mount Washington. So it wasn't like he wasn't concerned, but he wanted her to understand that there has to be, once there's a certain commitment, you have to take that commitment seriously. And um, that was a very unique example. I only bring it up to say how strong Master felt about this, that we have to be asking ourselves. A great deal of, of following of duty is fear and guilt and it's not really a joyful embracing of responsibility. 
So it's a very it's a very sensitive issue. Um, just because I started about India, and, I, and I'm not going to blame that culture or point out it's. I'm not saying that it's you know altogether bad or clear cut because America is just a mess in the way that we're handling all of this. So I don't have a lot to say about this side either. But I am saying that it, that our lives belong to God. Everybody's life belongs to God, and we've had so many mothers and fathers, and to to run our lives entirely by our biological relatives um, is a social code. And we have to run our lives by our devotion to God. And this is where Swami says, where there is dharma, there is victory. If we are behaving in accordance with that which brings us closer to the divine and genuinely expands our consciousness, then it will always come out the way it's supposed to come out in, in the end. But, but one also, the other thing about the spiritual path, you see, is that even if you're doing the right thing because you're afraid to do the wrong thing. And this is where Swamiji says, it's not just your actions. The deeds themselves are less important than the intentions behind those deeds. Sometimes people behave properly, but they're not behaving properly out of genuine motive, genuine generosity of heart. They're just afraid to be bad. As Swamiji said, people, a lot of people are good because they don't have the courage to sin. Or, or even put it worse once, he said they don't have the energy to sin. They're pious because they don't have an, enough energy to do anything else. That was the story that Master pointed out to one monk and he held him up as an example to the other monks because he seemed to be so free of sexual inclination. And then one of the, the monks answered Master, but sir, he don't have no energy at all. <laughs> and Master laughed and said, well, yes, there is that. Because <laughs> he saw it himself. He wasn't really like he transcended it. He just didn't, he was too passive. So we have to ask ourselves, you know, you know what? What is really moving me here? Is this really nobility of spirit, or is just this just fear of censure, or, or guilt, or all the things that are put into us? Free, I mean, what I'm saying is, the goal is freedom. And even Master put it a different way: it's not enough to be good merely because it is our habit to be good. Is how he put it. He said, "You must choose the righteous path because in your heart you know it's the only, the only." Um, reality that, that you want. Because we're good because it's easier. It's just easier to behave in a certain way than to actually ask, you know, what am I being called to do? When we were very young in Ananda village in Swamiji, young in years and young in the community, uh, chronological years, uh, Swamiji really wanted us to stay in the community for Christmas. And for many of us who were in our early 20s, it was a big deal. Fortunately, I was very glad to be Jewish at that point. But for many of the people, it was just a really big deal to not go home for Christmas. And, but Swamiji put it out quite firmly. He himself went home to his parents after all of our Christmas festivities were done. He would drive back to Atherton on, on Christmas night. He just did that year after year. He'd finish all of Ananda Christmas and he would get in his car and he would drive down to, to be with his parents on Christmas night. But, uh, so he honored them, but not quite. Uh, and, uh, and this is what he said. He said, their egos will be dismayed, but if you make a spiritual choice, their souls will rejoice. Which I've, I've really remembered that a lot. They don't, they don't like it, but if you advance spiritually, they will be blessed. So if you do the right thing spiritually, you're serving them much more 
than if you just cooperate with their human demands on us. It's very, it's very, very tricky. And just everything that we do, the thought of how it's going to read in the press, you know, how, how much uh, everybody will think I'm such a fine fellow for doing this. You have to be very careful about that. Uh, I think I find that none of the people are so sincere. We're not much inclined um, to the insincere gesture for the sake of making a good impression. But uh, it's always something to watch. But he says, still, it's better to do a good thing for the wrong reason than not to do it at all. I'll go back to what I said, but I've said it before. The goal of the spiritual path is freedom, not any specific behavior. So it's better to to break your compulsive habits than it is to do the right thing, but let those compulsions lead you. I used to make, when I would do the the chakras classes, what's at the center of the circle? If the center of the circle is fear, and that's actually the driving force, you have to dissolve that fear before you can actually be behaving properly. That's why the old, the good old hellfire and brimstone um, kept people in line, but uh, it wasn't necessarily a good thing. I was actually having a discussion, again going back to India, because this, my last trip this was in my mind a great deal, because I was really trying to understand how to be helpful and not just be American, but to just really be helpful to where I was standing. And you know, there's just such a, a, a disintegration happening in the whole world and also in that culture Um, one of our friends was telling me that you know my son's starting salary was my ending salary (laughs) you know and the luxury that he lives in is something that I never could even imagine so it's all and now the Bollywood movies are um, they're not quite as explicitly pornographic as the American movies but they're edging there really steadily and you see these huge uh, billboards of scantily clad people, I mean huge, gigantic, and they get all the American movies and all of that. And so the whole culture is breaking down. And all of the American media just glorifies, you know, promiscuity and just and, and pleasure above all of their concerns. And many of them, the culture that's portrayed deliberately is um, has tremendous disrespect for authority figures, for teachers, for parents. So many things just portray the parents as foolish and only the young people know what's up. I mean, you think this is not going to influence things there? So uh, one woman was talking to me and lamenting this and just talking about, you know, people behaved before and so on like this. And I was talking about Ananda and, and how we as a community are going to relate to that. And I said, everybody stayed in line, but that didn't mean that they were good at all. It just led to a lot of uh, 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 suppressed energy, which never works. As Swamiji said, it doesn't work to suppress energy because it just pops out in some bizarre way later. <laughs> it's just, and even Krishna says that. You know, what is the point of suppressing? Transcending is different. You can hold things in by fear and social custom, but people don't necessarily grow. It just festers in that reality. And they become very angry and strange in other ways. Um, the The... Plus, once you know, sort of once the once the lid is off, you can't just stuff everything back in. Once the internet has started, and the movies have started, and the international globalization have started, and the invasion of other cultures have started, you just can't stop. There's no stopping it. 
I mean, all of this is the end of dictatorship and of all kinds. Because once you have free access to information, you can't have dictatorship anymore. And if it's social dictatorship and so on. So what is the self-realization response? Because we're going into Dwapar Yuga, we have to find, I don't think the licentiousness of our age is really a very good idea at all. It's, it's, it's massively misery-producing. But the, there's no choice to go backwards. As Swami says, I think it was in this book, um, the Dwapara Yuga energy is just happening. And we're just going to have to go through this chaotic middle ground where there's too much energy and not enough clarity. And everybody's going to just be grabbing for their experiences and only just a little bit at a time it'll come back. To, um, but, but when it comes back, it'll come back from the point of view of people understanding you know, what, what degree of materialism will satisfy them, what degree of self-indulgence will satisfy them, what degree of duty is genuinely expansive and not merely socially convenient, but genuinely expansive. You know, the, the irony, I was 18, 19, 20, when um, I was working in a law office in San Francisco. And I, I, I grew up in a very, it, it, I, I guess sort of in an elitist kind of edge or a, an eccentric edge. Being an intellectual Jewish family and relatively non-materialistic, we were, you know, we were encouraged to think. My brother was a debater. I was a debater for a while. You know, we just th- thought things through and we would have discussions in our house. That was, that was the way we related. We debated, actually. We didn't converse. That was just how we did. We were always grinding down to find what it was. We didn't ever... And, and if you grow up Jewish, you're, you're not a wasp. One of my friends, I realized oh, just a few years ago that she's from an old East Coast family. I just sort of realized, you're a wasp. You're just a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. That's why even though I love her, she's also been a little weird to me all the time. She just has, it's like, I'm a Bohemian Jew. My father's from New York City. You know, it's like, that's why you're darling and just so adorable in your attitudes. But my God. So I'm working in this law office and this woman is getting married. And she's getting married out of the magazines. I mean, just really out of the magazines. She has the magazines. And she's looking at them. And I believe she got divorced out of the magazines. I can't imagine, you know. And I was, I mean, I was so naive. I'd never seen anybody who took their values from outside. I mean, I didn't even know people could take their values from outside. Because I just didn't live in that world. You know, right after World War II, Jews did not take their values from outside. You protected yourself on every level. And my family wasn't even extreme, but it was just, it was in the water. I just took it in that way. That was why my wasp friend was so adorable. Oh, my goodness, look, you just have, like, social values. (laughs) (laughs) But this woman got married from the magazine, and I kept waiting for her um, to become individual. But she never did. She did the whole thing. That's why I believe she probably got divorced from the magazine, too, just because that was the way it is. But we can't do that as devotees. It doesn't mean we, we can't conform. It doesn't mean we can't be very obedient and even very cooperative. But we must be doing it from the inside. 
And then if it's from the inside, see, that's what will happen over time. Society will balance itself. Right now, people are just acting from the inside with a kind of whoopee attitude, which is the walls are down and here we go. But it doesn't work. It makes people miserable. And that'll gradually work itself out. We were certainly... I, 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 the question was, as a Jewish person, were we coming from the inside? Um, no, because I wouldn't say that we were any more spiritual from the point of view of really intuition from God. But we were, I was never expected to follow social customs. And I was never expected to conform to social norms merely because they were social norms. I was never, oh my, that's just not done. We never wear white shoes after Labor Day. You know? <laughs> I mean, really, that level of things. You know, you just, you just don't wear white shoes after Labor Day. You wear them in the summer, and then once the fall comes, you just don't wear them anymore. I mean, Lisa's nodding her head. She knows. It's real. It was just like, I remember, I mean, just at a certain point, I realized that if you weren't embarrassed, you could wear anything you wanted that the entire thing was enforced by embarrassment. And if you weren't embarrassed, then there were no rules. That 99% of it was whether you were embarrassed or not. That's what I mean. It's like I just didn't have this sense of this is how you behave, this is how you dress, this is how you speak. No, if I didn't feel like it, I wouldn't do it. I wasn't as courageous as I became later. But I never, never considered that I would find out what was done and then do it. Never crossed my mind. Okay, let's take a break. Okay, did you have a question? Did, no, you weren't. Anyone else? Okay, you were speaking, but you were speaking about that. All right. So, uh, uh, Saiganesh and I were talking during the intermission just about the whole Kali Yuga, Dwapara Yuga issue, and people who are, and, and rightly so, I mean, the Indian culture is in a very tricky position because they have a culture worth preserving and they have a a fine and noble tradition that we are also part of um, that is really being undermined by the uh, influx of the West and materialism. Swamiji just said it's simply a necessary transition that India has to move into the modern world. He puts it in a very, he's very interesting when he speaks about it. He said India is simply too important on the planet to, to be backward. It has to, it has to match the globe in every other way. So, and what we see everywhere, everywhere, the world is just the same now. People wear the same clothes. They drive the same vehicles. They watch the same media. We're just, it's a global, and it's a mess because you're losing a lot, but it's just simply necessary. It's... it's uh, Dwapara Yuga rising. But for people who can't quite grasp that, and the Indian tradition, um, Sri Yukteswar was a revolutionary when he said it was Dwapara, which he mentions in Autobiography of a Yogi, but in the West we don't think about this, that the tradition of India is that it's 400,000 more years of Kali Yuga. And the disintegration of society is used as a proof of that. But you see, what's disintegrating is form. And what's coming in is people's demand to let their own experience be their criteria for their decisions, which, as Swamiji says, in the end will work out well because there is such a thing as divine law and there is such a thing as that which draws us what we're studying here. Certain actions bring misery and certain actions don't. 
And so if people, you know, act out the miserable actions long enough, their own experience will bring it back and then we'll be stronger. When I was talking to a young man who's in his early 20s and he's not on the spiritual path and he was just, you know, just we were having a discussion about the uh, utterly depraved habits of his generation. And uh, I just said, well, I was so distressed by it. Just the uh, sexual mores, the comp- just, the, just so many things. There's a million things. It's easy for someone like me to just say, oh my gosh. But I said, well, the good news is that whatever values you come to, you will come to them from the inside. Because, and that is the good news, because there's just absolutely nothing you can't do in this society. You can just do anything you want. So you don't have any strictures. So you really have to decide, who am I and who do I want to be? And that's actually progress. Perhaps not immediately. But in the end, it's great progress because people are not acting then from fear or just sheer lack of imagination or, or such low energy that, or such lack of creativity that they'll just get married from the magazine. Okay, is that enough of that? How about we are up to number 215. Let me just see what I wrote here. Um, oh, I know what I, w- I... I have a point here that I think is worth mentioning. You know, the, the thing about social mores, and this comes back to something we've said before, what I wrote here is that in the end, you see, consciousness is the only enduring reality. Social customs come and go. And, and if our... If our self-discipline is only externally imposed, then we haven't necessarily changed ourselves. We may have gained a little by holding, our, holding ourselves at bay. And I was starting to say about religions that promise you'll be, that you'll go to hell forever if you misbehave. I mean, that's a real effective technique. <laughs> you know, just for keeping everybody right where they're supposed to be. And it was actually interesting to me in the childhood of Teresa of Avila, Um, she really sort of looked at it, she calculated it. And she thought, you know, either I have a a pleasurable, self-indulgent time for a few years here and then I go to hell forever, or I just sacrifice this life and then I get to have an eternity with God. And so she, as a child, persuaded her brother and they just set out and they were on their way to find a way to be martyred because she thought if they were martyred, that was the most direct route um, to this uh, everlasting bliss. I mean, it was just a child's mind, but it was a very reasonable position. So Amiji has often joked about the problem of saying that if you commit certain sins, then you'll have certain consequences. But the calculating mind immediately tries to figure out how bad can I be and, and still get away with it? You know, what can I do in the end uh, to, to fix it once it's just weighed and measured? And that's where the poor Catholic Church uh, and I suspect that some of us were involved in figuring all this out. Once you start down the road of saying that this sin has this punishment and this sin has this punishment, but this mitigating factor will affect that sin, pretty soon you've got to run the whole thing. There's just question after question. And you have to start answering all of them because the human mind wants to know how bad it can be and get away with it. So I'm, I didn't grow up Catholic, obviously, but people who did... and. We have a number of our light bearers who are, who are really highly trained Catholics and you sort of push certain mental buttons and all that they had to memorize as children just starts coming out of their mouths. 
of, you know, of what it all means. And it's not the one of those things where I'm just like, wow, that's really something. And they, they talked about, I don't mean to be so rude, but really from a certain point of view now, uh, those are ones who are my age and a little older. As children, every year there was a certain drive where you tried to raise money. Let's see what it was for. Was it to ransom the, the it was it was so that to send missionaries out, yeah, to save the pagan babies. Yeah, the pagan babies. And so you would support the missionaries and you would to go out and they could convert the pagan. This was you. You and your parents. They were out to to save you from eternal damnation because if you didn't hear about Jesus Christ and were saved. And so the little children would worry about the pagan babies. And so they would give their pennies in. You think about it now, but it, it was a powerful moving force. To be honest, to, just to give it its due, um, Pearl S. Buck, who was a very, very popular novelist, wonderful novelist, and she lived 40 years in China. And she lived all those years in China because her father was a missionary. And as she described her father, she wrote a book about her father. It's, it's really a fascinating book. She wrote a book about her father and about her mother can't remember the name of either one right now, but they're well worth reading, especially the one about her dad. Well, both of them. But she talks about, you know, in, in a certain way, what a great man her father was because he had such a deep and passionate belief in the teachings of Christ and their vital importance to people and his responsibility to be the messenger of that. And contrary to many of the missionaries, he was very different than most of them. Most of the missionaries from England or America, clustered together in these tiny little enclaves and did not really integrate into the society. He, for the sake of his missionary work, had a completely different attitude. He just went and lived with the people, his ch- let his children you know, learn Chinese and become Chinese. He learned all the local dialects. He, he translated the Bible into local books. He was a, a legend in the Chinese missionary world. It was all with this thought um, that he had to do this. This was his divine duty. But it, it caused him to be. And he was much loved by the Chinese people because of that. Because he really embraced their reality and then tried to bring them, but it was all very sincerely meant. But he, she also talks very sensitively about, you know, um, just how, how real that thought was to him that if they didn't have the opportunity to accept Jesus Christ, then they would be damned. And he just, he worked, you know, he just worked all the time. Because if he didn't, you know, these souls would suffer so much, and he so wanted to save them from that suffering. It's like um, very fascinating, the different paths that you can go go through. So even though it's, it's hard to... Um, in the world that we live in today, that kind of attitude is harder to embrace. But his intentions, this is talking about what is really good and what is really not good, his intentions were really quite noble. And he was totally willing to, to put his life completely on the line. Now, he was really eccentric. And she, she talks about their life together. That his mother wouldn't let him go to the mission field unmarried. So he found a wife. But he found her only so that he could go to China and be a missionary. And he was so unconscious of her that when he booked his ticket to go to China, he only booked one. 
And then he had to go back and remember that he had to take his wife with him. And he never considered her reality at all. It was, it was, a, very, it was a very interesting... So both of their stories are fascinating. But she too, she recognized what he was doing and she sacrificed for the sake of the great work that he was doing. And then Pearl Buck grew up in this Chinese world. It is very amazing what people can do, but noble, very noble in his own way. Um, you know, there was an aspect of it that was pretty small, but still the sacrifice was just stupendous. Fascinating. She also, she tells a story in there about they lived in this compound and they were supported from America or from England. I don't know if they were American or English, I can't remember now. Um, but she talked about it. there was a famine that struck the rest of the country, but because they were supported from outside of the country. And she talked about just how for those months they just boiled rice and just passed it out through this little opening. And she just, she was a small child and she remembers all these little hands coming in to, because they didn't dare open the doors. But she, they would just boil rice and then they would just pass it out and pass it out. And you know, her, all that her mother had to do to protect her children from this just terrible thing that was going on outside. And she was, only later did she really, uh, Pearl herself, really cognize what they were up against in that situation. Yeah. But, but still, there's just this nobility. It's not simple. You can't just dismiss these things as simple. You have to, see, this is what he's saying here. You have to really go into what's really happening on the inside, what's really motivating these people. Okay. Um, but what I was started to say was, the only thing that you ever take with you is your consciousness. So it really doesn't matter how you have lived. It only matters what attitude you have had during that time that you were living and what it did for your heart. Whether or not your heart expanded, became softer, you became more compassionate, more patient, more willing to understand the play of God in your life. You can live in any way at all that you want to. And that's why I remember he said that to me personally once. It doesn't really matter what you do. It only depends on how you do it. And you're making such a big point of all the details of it. It's not that at all. It's, it's how can I expand my consciousness in, in what I have? How can I expand my consciousness? For some reason that point has become very vivid to me recently because I'm, I'm very much of a karma yogi and I'm really dedicated to Master's mission and I'm always you know, onward self-realization soldiers, you know, marching on to pass the, the good news of Kriya Yoga here. And at the same time, none of that will actually make us happy unless we make ourselves happy. And we can become just as, it's good work and it's good karma, and it'll give us, a, a, you know, a leg up. It'll, it sets in motion good causes, but how how we're doing it is much more than what we're doing. Even good things. Is that the illustration of lower altars of good works versus the noble taper of inner communion? Yes, but not not exactly because not you know not it's, concretely. It's a medium altar of good works <laughs> because. <laughs> We're trying to carry out Master's mission. But I suppose if you're just taking care of the poor, you're carrying out Jesus' mission. I was having a discussion with someone just on the weekend. Apparently Mother Teresa was um, 
Mother Teresa of Calcutta, was criticized for not be, being efficient in her service to the poor. My friend was talking to me about some book that was written, and so what could they find to criticize? Well, you know, if she had used more modern devices, and she shunned modern devices and so on. And of course, that's not what she was doing. She wasn't trying to help the poor. She wasn't trying to change poverty. She herself was doing what Jesus asked her to do, and what she was giving to people was the love of Christ. And, and that's what she was doing. You can't measure it by any atheistic, materialistic standard of how many hundred people were fed and you know how many dying people were comforted or put into the hospital and you could have done it more efficiently. She wasn't doing that at all. Am I? I de- this is how I define my own life. I had the opportunity to meet Swami Kriyananda at a very early age. I had the good karma to recognize him as soon as I met him. I had the opportunity to learn a lot from him. I have been gifted with a good memory for what he taught me and a certain knack for knowing where it fits into the big story. And that's what I do. And I, that's, I feel that is my obligation is a really simple and a very direct one, which is I've been... Well, that's why I wasn't quite sure how to answer that question. Because, because we're... But I don't want to denigrate people who, who's, who are called by God to feed the poor. But it's not lower works without divine communion. What I have been understanding is... What I've been understanding is different than that. What I've been understanding is that no amount of external conditions will make you at peace inside yourself unless you are at peace inside yourself. And that, that's a slightly different thing. That consciousness is different from action. And self-worth in the eyes of God is different from the praise of mankind. And I mean, Swamiji often said that so interesting how he would say things. I've heard him say that many, many times, and for some reason, just reason, I've been understanding it. But just he would—he had this sort of massive indifference to what people thought, and I can understand that. Just sort of like not just what I was saying—not ruling your life by other people's opinions. But he so often talked about how his inner consciousness was just completely un, independent entirely. Of, I mean, when he talked about his brothers and sisters at SRF who persecuted him so much, um, but he decided that how he felt about them would simply not be dependent on how they treated him. His, his inner attitude toward them because, he said, I'm happier if I love. And I, I've heard that hundreds of times, but recently I've, I've sort of been just seeing it differently that you simply choose your inner consciousness. And then what happens just doesn't matter. Whether you succeed or whether you fail, whether people praise you or attack you. And Swamiji was being vilified in the press and in the courts and all of that stuff. He repeatedly said, this doesn't matter to him. He sat there and heard people just say terrible things about him. And he said, it's not me they're talking about. And he didn't just mean that they weren't speaking the facts. He really meant, it's not me they're talking about. They're talking about 
the person they see falsely even about him, but it's just simply not me. I'm just indifferent to this. There was a much worse story that was fortunately not ours, but there was a Swami who was a very good man who was accused of... Uh, some crazy woman accused him of molesting her child. And we knew the Swami. He, he was not guilty. But when he went into the courtroom, it was just so gross. He just refused to relate to it. And he went to jail for many years. Finally, he was released, but he just, he just would not demean himself by relating to it. He said later, it was in my horoscope to go to prison. It would have had to happen anyway. But to just be, because consciousness is the only reality, to just be in your own consciousness and just live through it, no matter what. And But you see, we can imagine that we'll start practicing that when we're falsely accused and about to be in prison, but it's actually easier to practice it when you're just working in an office somewhere and people are not nice to you. Or when you have too much to do and you start getting really stressed about it. Or when all your helpers don't show up. Or you just are simply unable to accomplish what you wanted to accomplish because nobody is helping you. And then when you can really separate your outer circumstances from your inner consciousness and really realize that they are not merely, they're just unrelated. That's the word I'm looking for. And that's, that's what's occurred to me really. Independent is one thing. But unrelated is what's begun to occur to me. They're absolutely unrelated. Your inner consciousness is completely different than anything that's going on around you. And to, to draw a connection between the two at all is just false. And now think about what freedom that really is, even just to, to have fun practicing it. Remember the story of the sadhu who went into the village and when he came back to his ashram, he was all bruised and bleeding? And he said, oh, we had such fun. The boys were throwing stones. The boys were throwing stones at him. But it's just like, why would he relate to that? They were just, boys were having lots of fun throwing stones. His inner consciousness was unrelated to what was going on around him because all of this comes and goes. And the only thing that endures is our consciousness. Uh, We need to pass the microphone over to Nishkama. Perhaps your inner consciousness is indeed unrelated to what's going on around you, but it's certainly not unrelated to the things you do from the purity of your inner self. No, but then you're talking about your inner self. Yeah. And that's why Swamiji writes, your intentions are more important. That was, was a, that was a big crisis I had at one point when I was trying sincerely to help someone and uh, they refused to be helped and in fact um, went to tell Swami how incompetent I was and recited to Swamiji the whole tale of supposedly what I had done, which of course was not what I had done. And uh, I, re- I was ready to, re- I resigned at that point. I just resigned. Swami wouldn't accept my resignation. And then uh, he said, it's not, it's, it's your intentions that count. You know, I said, you know, that's not at all what happened. That was, but he, then Swami reprimanded me for not being more conscious of the effect of my words and actions on other people. But he did tell me, to, first he said, God, God judges your heart. 
And if you mean well, even if you make a mess, if you're just, it's better not to be incompetent, but if you have a good heart and you are, that's better than being competent and having a poor heart about the whole thing. So, all right, everyone. I think that will end our little evening tonight. Okay, so we did number, was it 12 and 13? I lost track. 13 and 14. We did 2, 13, and 14. So, great. I've been, I mean, it's no mystery why Patanjali has endured all these centuries. Yeah, and people think of him as, you know, the Eightfold Path and with Asana being the main one. They just, but this is so, there's nothing that explains it like this.